If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Ecclesiastes. We are going to pick up where we left off last week as we are in week number two of our new series. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that as we just sang, we have a firm foundation in You. Father, we thank You that You are here, present with us by Your Spirit, and You have given Your people Your Word. So Father, we pray and ask now that Your Word and Spirit would have their way with Your gathered people. Father, would you enable us to see, as it were, through your word to who you are. May we look into your word and see ourselves and see our Savior. And as we sing, continue to run for refuge to him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Don't know how long the series is going to last, uh, probably more than 12 weeks, uh, probably less than 25, uh, somewhere probably between that. So we're going to be spending the next few months in Ecclesiastes with a break here and there, possibly. Um, I think it's important uh, to go over in the first few weeks kind of some general things. Um, you'll maybe think, man, aren't you just repeating uh, from last week? Well, yes and no. Um, you got to kind of set the lay of the land uh, first, and uh, then we'll be able to navigate uh, better as we work our way through. Here we are in week number two in a new series, A Life of Sanity in a World of Vanity. And I hope that title will actually be reflective of what we're doing here in Ecclesiastes, and it will help us stay anchored to our calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in a fallen world a world which is, as we all know, full of sin and misery, full of frustration and futility, full of confusion and chaos. This series, I believe, will help us to find, maintain, and indeed strengthen an eternal perspective rather than just a temporal perspective on life. Hopefully it'll help us increase our recognition that the there and then of heaven should and indeed can influence the here and now of our life on earth. As I mentioned last week, um, many of us have committed to memory uh, that proverb in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, and I think we'll continue to see that the entire book of Ecclesiastes could in some ways be seen as a commentary on these words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, as you heard last week, Ecclesiastes, the title comes from the very first sentence where we read of the words of the preacher, Koheleth. The Koheleth is the one who addresses the gathered assembly. And the English title here that we use is taken from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and also the Latin uh, Vulgate uh, version of the scriptures. 
And here Ecclesiastes, it's meaning the assembly speaker, the preacher. And indeed, it's related to the word church in the Greek language. Now, let's go over a few basic questions and remind ourselves of answers about this book. And well, first of all, what type of writing is it? It's wisdom literature. It's like Psalms and Proverbs and Job and, and uh, Song of Solomon. It's concerned with imparting wisdom and knowledge to God's people and to teaching them, teaching you, teaching me to fear the Lord. Who's the author? Well, even though it's not directly attributed to Solomon, most likely for our purposes, Solomon is the author. When was it written? Well, if it's written in the days of uh, Solomon's reign, it's in as early as 930 BC in the 10th century, and there's going to be some editing along the ways, and so maybe it got to its final form by the 6th century BC. Now, why was it written? Well, we'll see over and over again, its purpose is to present the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. It's going to show us that life without God really is empty, and yet life with God is fulfilling. Now, how does it speak? Well, it speaks by meandering its way from beginning to end. There's a cyclical account of various dead ends that Solomon shares with the reader that he went down only to turn around and walk back, recognizing it was indeed a dead end. As we work our way through Ecclesiastes, you will see proverbs in clusters. You will see poetry as we will see today. As Rob reiterated, this is a challenging book to understand and apply. And apply. Well, why? Well, it's hard to, to see the structure sometimes because it shifts between topics and it, it's going to alternate between what could be the majority negative, but it'll also go to the positive um, here and there. And at times it seems contradictory, not only to other parts of the Bible, but even to itself. At first glance, it does seem to be somewhat, if not overly pessimistic. However, with a bit more reflection, the pessimism will give way not to a naive optimism, but rather to realistic faith. This is an important book. We neglect it, we ignore it to our detriment, and we pay attention to it, we turn to it for our great blessing. Why? Well, first and foremost, it's God's word. It's God-breathed. It's useful. It's profitable. It's a lamp. It's a light in this dark world. It helps us find our way. It is sharp. It'll wound us. It'll heal us. God's word is indeed a double-edged sword. Ecclesiastes will help us open our eyes and observe the world around us. It will help us ask the right questions. Because not only do we need, as it were, the right answers, we actually need to ask the right questions. It will help us to gain and maintain an eternal perspective, a Godward perspective. And so it's going to be important that not only on Sundays, but throughout the week, that we all read it slowly, contemplatively, reflectively, prayerfully, asking God to show us the treasure of his word. And as I said at the beginning of last week, it's important that we view Ecclesiastes through the lens 
of the New Testament. We, we don't get just the brute fact of Ecclesiastes, the bare Ecclesiastes in and of itself. No, we see it in the context of all of God's word, in particular the completed canon of scripture. Remember Jesus' last words of instruction to his disciples, utter truth, utter realism. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Put simply, Jesus says, in the world you're going to have trouble, but in me you're going to have peace. You're going to have sanity. Ecclesiastes, I believe, will help all of us take heart, take courage, be of good cheer, because it'll direct us away from ourselves, away from the troubles, and to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who makes us sane and the one who keeps us sane. Last week, we looked at the beginning and the ending, the bookends, as it were, that hold the book together. Remember the prologue, and you can see it in verses one and two, all is vanity. All is vanity. Not all is meaningless, but rather all Everything is like a mist, like a, like a vapor, like a mere breath. It's fleeting, it's empty, and you really can't grab it with your hands. It just disappears. And yet we also spent some time in the epilogue, the ending, because we can't really understand anything in Ecclesiastes without understanding where it ends up. And we saw at the end, he proclaims once again, all is vanity. In fact, that's the bookends of Solomon's conclusion. It's all is vanity. All is like a vapor. All is mist. All is transitory, temporary. And we see, though, that we find that in Ecclesiastes, there are words of pleasure, words of delight. There's going to be words of pain. Remember the image of the goad, the image of the nails. It's going to wound. It's going to be painful to be kept on the path. Ecclesiastes will help us provide the right perspective. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, the bottom line is this, fear God and keep his commandments. It's the whole duty of man. And not only will it help us to have perspective, but it will help us prepare for death and judgment as we read those last words about God knowing every secret thing. Well, today we're going to explore and evaluate this poem that the preacher uses to set up the rest of his book. And here we'll get a good sense of Ecclesiastes and its attitude toward life. And for those of you, and I know there's a few that think Ecclesiastes is pessimistic, I give you this poem. You have a good point. A point, as we will see, well taken. Let's listen to this poem, verses 3 through 11. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. 
Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We see that the poem starts with Solomon asking the question. We see it in verse 3. What does man gain? What does man gain? And we'll see that very question repeated several times as he works his way through these successive dead ends. Here we see right off the bat the importance of asking questions. Um, This past week, a a gentleman came into the church building. He wanted to see what the building looked like inside, and, and he wanted to ask me a question. He said he believed in Jesus, he believed in the Bible, but he wasn't sure what was after this life. 97 years old, and he wants to know what's next. My friends, he was asking a great question, an important question. And I left him with some literature, one thing in particular, ultimate questions. It's a little book that belongs in our uh, visitor's information folder. Ultimate questions. Here, Solomon is asking a good question. Yes, it's rhetorical. It's being used for effect, but but it is important. What does man gain? What does man gain? Um, The the idea is profit, of surplus, like I'm going to work and work and work, and is there going to be anything left over? Is there any profit? The toil There's the noun, and then there's the toils. It's a verb. Is there any gain in the midst of this toil and my toiling? The futility and the frustration of work. Is there going to be a profit? And for those of you attuned to some of the words of Jesus, you may be thinking, wait a minute. Jesus asked some similar questions. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and yet lose his very soul. Solomon is asking an important question, and it's taking us back to the fall, the fall of man into sin. We read about it in Genesis 3. The curse affects work, work a good thing, work a glorious thing, and yet due to sin, work is labor, laborious, frustrating, at times futile, thorns and thistles, sweat. It doesn't go as planned. And we saw in our New Testament reading in Romans 8 that the entire creation is under the curse because of sin. What does man gain by 
all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Here's the first use of that expression in Ecclesiastes, synonymous with what we will see later is on earth and under heaven. And interestingly, it's nowhere else in the Bible, but here in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. It's not so much the secular view, but it's the world and mankind in their current fallen state. It's the New Testament version or the Old Testament version of the New Testament's this age, this present evil age, this present time. You see, under the sun, it has to do not with space, but with time, because indeed in scripture, the sun is a measure of time. And we do that ourselves today, the sun and our orbit around the sun measuring time. This poem starts off with a question, an honest question, a realistic question, a a, a question that I think any of us could ask, what do I gain by all the toil at which I toil under the sun? It's an honest question. It's a good question. It is not a question that Jesus received often from religious leaders. They didn't want to know the answer. They wanted to trap him. This is an honest question, a question to learn, to grow, to change, to find hope, to find significance. I hope you and I are the kind of people that ask honest questions, good questions. Well, he begins to answer the question, but we'll see not directly, but indirectly, not explicitly, but indeed implicitly. Because in verses 4 through 7, we will see the beginning of his observations of the natural order. He observes the world around him, the, the natural order, and he sees four elemental things of nature. And he sees no change. Notice how he compares in verse 4 humanity to the earth. He's looking at mankind and he says, we are temporary and transitory. But the earth... Is, is everlasting, is stable. He's going to, in a moment, switch over from the natural order to the human experience. And he's, he's going to say, as long as the earth remains, it is as restless and repetitive as ours. And now he's going to pick out three examples, the sun, the wind, and the streams. Verse Five, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. And verse 7, all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. There's a regular pattern, repetition, rising, setting, rising, setting, going around and around in circles. In fact, with the sun and the wind here, you get two metaphors that are going to be used throughout Ecclesiastes, under the sun and striving after the wind. And he moves on to looking at streams, observing rivers, water. It flows forever to the sea, but the sea is not full. All of these things he observed show repetition, but no progress. Now, kids, I think most of y'all have seen the hamster on the hamster wheel, right? The hamster runs and runs and gets nowhere, right? 
Some of us that go to the gym and we're on the treadmill, right? We get off 30 minutes later and where are we? Well, hopefully we're in better shape, but we haven't gone anywhere. We're right there and that's what he's saying. The preacher, you see, is, a, is observing the world around him. He's telling it like it is. He looks at the sun. He looks at the wind. He looks at the streams. And he just calls it like he sees it. I think that was Howard Cosell, uh, the ABC uh, sportscaster years ago. I, I call it like I, I see it. I mean, Solomon is a man of his own times. But he's also a man for today, right? He's authentic, Right? I mean, Ecclesiastes has rightly been called the most contemporary or modern book in the Bible. I think we'll see that as we go. And Ecclesiastes is going to set out to demolish our propensity to pretend by confronting us with reality. And he does that initially by just making observations of the natural world, the natural order. You see... The things he can see with his eyes lead him not to answers, but nonetheless to an initial conclusion as he shifts his focus now to observing the human experience, verses 8 through 11. And here the poem pivots on verse 8. Look at how verse 8 begins. All things are full of weariness. You can hear the echo of all is vanity. All is vanity. All things are full of weariness. It's a, it's a statement or a restatement of the theme. It's, he's moving from nature to humanity. He's saying that, beginning to say that all of our efforts are futile. He observes the constant motion of the world around him without lasting achievement. Doing much and getting nowhere. And he looks around at the human experience and he he says, all things are full of weariness. And as far as he can tell, it's one of failure. It's a failure, first of all, of speech. Look at verse 8, it continues. A man cannot utter it. He is so weary. He doesn't even know how to express it. He He can't form the words to capture it. All he can say is all things are full of weariness. You know, oftentimes we're, we're, we're speechless because of something exciting and wonderful. We, we don't know how to thank someone for a gift. We're speechless. But here, Solomon is speechless. The weariness is heavy. It's a failure in speech. There's, there's no ability to express, but it also, there's a failure in sight. Look how it continues. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. There's no satisfaction. There's never enough. Just one more thing to view. Now, some of you may not watch television. Some of you may not watch movies, but I guarantee most of us in one way or another watch video clips of some sort for for training purposes at work and when the video ends it's like I'd like to see another I mean I want to see another have you have you gone to a movie and 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 been satisfied to the degree that you wouldn't want to see something pick up and move forward from where it left off 
He's just observing that in humanity, in the human experience, the, the eye really is not satisfied. Nor is the ear satisfied. There's, there's no satisfaction in hearing. Just one more song to listen to. Just one more voice to hear. You can't tie it up. You can't sit down and say it's complete. And this failure, a failure in speech, a failure in sight, a failure in hearing, leads him to make a statement and to ask another question. And look at verses 9 through 10. He makes a statement. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. He goes on in verse 10 to ask the question, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It, he sees and observes the failure to introduce any genuine progress or change in hum, human history. And not only that, to conclude his poem, he, he brings up one more failure. And this is kind of scary for some of us getting older. A failure in memory. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. A failure in memory. It's not the good news that all is forgiven. It's the bad news that all is forgotten. Do any of you all know a lot about your great-grandparents? Okay, I'm going to up it because I got a nod. Um, do any of you all know much about your great-grandparents? They lived lives. They had work, families. Who remembers them? In a hundred years, who's going to remember us? The vast majority of mankind is forgotten. I mean, this really is pessimistic, isn't it? The never-ending march of human generations appears to be as purposeless as the repetitive cycles of the natural order. There's nothing new and nothing remembered. After asking that question in verse 3, he speaks of a generation goes and a generation comes. And then in verse 11... He says, of that, there's no remembrance, nor will there be any remembrance. These two bookends in this poem are, are sad, sorrowful, pessimistic. Generations come, generations go. And nobody remembers. And again, he's comparing it to this repetitive cycle that he observes on earth. The earth that remains 
forever. So these two bookends in this poem really do hold together kind of bad news, sad news, pessimistic news, news that could, could, could say, yeah, it's, it's all vain, and, and what do I gain? Nothing. Nothing. To be sure, this poem is pessimistic, but... It is pessimism with a purpose. You see, it's a setup for the rest of the book. It's a, it's a setup because from here on out, we're going to be following the preacher as he takes this journey through all the dead ends and says, don't follow me here, but he will say, because God has given him special revelation, he will be able to say, look to the Lord. Look to God. Fear God, he concludes, and keep his commandments. You see, almost every verse um, in Ecclesiastes shows us that we're longing for something. Because this poem is it's the acknowledgement of, of longing for something new and lasting. Can't you hear it? And what he said, I'm longing for something new. I've observed the natural order. I've observed humanity and there's nothing new. But it's not spoken, but I want something new. I, we need something new. And, and there's the expectation that, wait a minute, the earth lasts, remains forever. What about humanity? Is there any lasting for humanity, for the generations, or are they all going to be forgotten? Because, you see, every verse in Ecclesiastes, I think, will show us how much we need something or someone to make all things new and to make all things last forever. Can you see where this leads? You see, Ecclesiastes is showing us again and again, it will show us that we were made for a new and better world. We were made to be in fellowship with the Father through faith in the Son. Kids, you know that the Old Testament is promises made and the New Testament is promises kept. And what do we see in the Old Testament? Promises for a new heart. We don't see that here. But we see it elsewhere. We see a new spirit promised. We don't see it here. It's elsewhere. We see new life promised. Is there anything new? The preacher asked. No, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet we know that if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Paul would say, because of Christ, if anyone is in Christ and because of Christ, new creation. Ecclesiastes is leaning forward to Jesus. Indeed, remember when Jesus, with Lazarus, talking to one of his sisters, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's going to be hard 
for Solomon to believe this. What? There's gonna be something new? What? There's gonna be something lasting? When we get to the end of special revelation, when we get to the end of revelation itself in chapter 21, we hear that great statement that behold, I am making all things new. You see how Ecclesiastes helped set up for that to be incredibly good news, all things new. And it continues in chapter 22 when it it speaks of his servants will reign forever and ever. This poem is sad and sorrowful, but it's utterly realistic because it's going to start to help us not place our hope and confidence in things that we can see with our eyes, but what we can see by faith. It's the necessary backdrop that helps form the bad news that makes the good news good. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All things are full of weariness. Ecclesiastes prepares the way for Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, these are heavy and difficult words. And yet they are realistic and they call life the way it is. But we thank you, Father, that there is a reality beyond what we can see with our eyes, that we can hear with our ears. We thank you, Father, for the reality that you have become man in the person and work of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that he welcomes the weary. He welcomes the weak. He welcomes the worried and the weighed down. Father, we thank you for a Savior that entered our world so that through faith in him, we could one day enter a new world and a world without end. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.